I got new running shoes to walk up to the pulpit in. Um, <laughs> they're really comfortable. I might. I keep thinking if I buy running shoes that someday I'll do it. But I don't. And my wife said, you better this time. Uh, well, it is great uh, to see all of you. Um, we are going to uh, finish up this current series that we're in, which has really just been uh, a, kind of the philosophy of ministry moving forward for Door of Hope uh, in, in what I see is, is essentially um, a, a grand reset. Uh, I was actually was at a dinner with a group of um, key pastors from around Portland uh, on Thursday night, and everyone in various ways right now are experiencing a reset. How do we move forward coming out of which you start wondering if we're ever actually going to come out of the pandemic, uh, but, uh, but how do we do church moving forward? Uh, you know, many of you probably have listened to the rise and fall of, of uh, Mars Hill, which has been extremely popular podcast, and that has been a continual discussion um, amongst, amongst leaders, and, and it's actually created even more um, confirmation for, for me personally in how it is that we as the elders and as the staff feel like God is leading us um, into this next season of what does church look like and how do we actually function as a community by which everyone feels like they are participating uh, in this grand gift that we have been given in Jesus and the demonstration of his presence to a lost world. And I believe that uh, the changes that we're making right now actually will produce growth that is not driven by a singular personality, but will produce growth by a commitment of the community to love one another as our foundation, to live radically honest before one another. Confession is the source of our fellowship that believe that witness is our sanctification and our sanctification flows out of our witness as we surrender to the Holy Spirit and who, a community that keeps the cross at the center. When these things are at play uh, and what we're gonna look at today, which is my fundamental belief that prayer itself is grace, the ability to commune with the living God. When these things are put into play, I believe that we have the potential of, of at least moving toward what I would call an apostolic faith. The question is constantly, how did the church function when it first began? And I think we can just go back to Acts 2.42 and just say at the most simple level, it was a group of people that gathered around King Jesus and his word, who broke bread together, who prayed together, um, and who demonstrated to the world the reality of Christ transforming life by their love for one another and their willingness to invite people in to meet the living Christ. I want that for our church. And so our view is that we grow, as I borrow from my dear friend Chuck Bomar, we, we will grow by staying small. Our desire is to, instead of just adding services and creating this, this momentum by uh, building ministry around one personality in the pulpit, we continually take over old churches and place vibrant Christ-following communities into the various neighborhoods of Portland. We've done it, we've got two of them, I think God wants to do much more, and I think that this is a really exciting way where we can move forward, and this is why we've reduced everything to a singular gathering. 
um, and put the emphasis on the idea of Sunday as the Lord's Day. Um, and today, going to the picnic and, and the baptisms is a way for us to participate in that. And then coming back for the evening service, or Redbird, and, and this is God's people's gathering around Jesus and really setting apart this day as a day to celebrate our life in Christ. So today, what I want us to consider is something that's been instrumental in Door of Hope's life, and that is the, the um, practice of prayer. And now, when we think of prayer as a practice, it immediately feels like work, and a work that often we feel guilty over the amount of effort we put into it. Uh, when we get to heaven, I, I don't think many of us will be accused of having prayed too much. Um, but if we think of prayer in terms of communication, I think about little Henry when he was four and I was trying to explain to him what prayer was. Um, I, I said, Henry, prayer is just, I go, do you understand what prayer is? Because we prayed together every night and he goes, he goes, not really. And I said, it's just talking with God. And he looked at me and he goes, why didn't you say that before? <laughs> and I'm like, it's a good question, buddy. But it, it, it kind of flows out of our, our, our own vocabulary and the familiarity of that vocabulary actually leading to a, a lack of understanding around what those words mean. And prayer is one of those words. And when you look through the gospels, you see in, in Jesus, this unbelievable power that is continually demonstrated. And I think it's interesting that the, that the thing that the disciples wanted to know how to do, they didn't ask Jesus how to preach, but they asked him how to pray. And that tells me that they witnessed something in the prayer life of Christ that they saw as the central source of his power and authority on earth. That there was a communion with with between the Son and the Father that the disciples witnessed um, in the way that the Son lived. For he said, I only do those things which please the Father. I only speak those, thing, those words that the Father gives to me. And my prayer for us as a community is that we learn how to attune our hearts and minds to the living Christ who is present. We're not gathered right now to learn about Jesus, we are gathered together to come around the living Christ who is present and what you should be coming into the Lord's day with is an expectation to meet with the living God. That we shouldn't be like Jacob who says God is in this place and I didn't know it. What I want us to be is a people that recognize that God is where we are. That the gospel, if it is anything, it is down to earth. God come down to us, to meet with us. The problem is, is that there are so many voices, so many noises that, that, that create an inability for us to attune our hearts, uh, the gaze of our souls, or the, the, I would say even our, the ears of the soul, to hear, to distinguish the still soft voice from all of the noise that is constantly infiltrating our existence. And I think that this is deeply problematic. But here's the thing that I've, I have found over the years, is that prayer often is presented in a way that produces guilt in the pew rather than longing. And I am not interested in making you feel guilty about how much or how little you pray. 
What I want you to know is that prayer is grace. That the father is pleased when his children just simply turn to him. Um, Look at this verse in Matthew chapter six, verses seven and eight. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. And I think that this is one of those powerful realities is that the father knows what we need. Grace in its essence is Emmanuel, God with us. And the father knows what we need, not because he knows everything. He knows what we need and he knows everything because he actually cares. He knows everything there is to know about you because he cares about you. His omniscience can't be, can't be separated from his concern for us as human beings. When we talk about the attributes of God, we generally do great damage to our understanding of who God is the moment we try to talk about God separate from his creation. Everything God reveals about himself in scripture directly corresponds to his relationship with broken, sinful humanity. And therefore, when Jesus says, your father already knows what you need before you ask him, what Jesus is communicating is that God is a father who is concerned about his children, and he knows what you need, but Jesus says, ask therefore, and you will receive. Knock, and the door will be open to you. You shall find what you're looking for when you come to him and you ask him. And I think one of the problems that we often have around prayer is that I ask God for all sorts of things and, and, you know, he never answers my prayers. God always answers prayer. It's just that we don't like that the answer, like a good parent, is often no. And I think that that the, the challenge is, is that we are told specifically in James, you have not because you ask not. And I think that that's the bigger issue is that we just simply don't come to him and ask him for anything. Um, or when you ask, you ask amiss. You ask for the wrong thing. But I love that we're told, and we considered this just a couple months ago, that the Holy Spirit is one who, who basically is an advocate on our behalf. And we're told that Jesus himself is an advocate on our behalf. And the way that I look at it is that the Spirit within us, when we say, God, give me this, will you give me this? Like a little kid, just like, I want this. And the spirit, as one who cares about us, goes, actually, what she meant is this. And it's usually not like, I want candy. It's like, he needs carrots. Um, <laughs> and so, so I think that, that what we have is, is that we have a wrong idea of who God is. Um, and if our view of God is that he's some sort of cosmic Santa Claus who just gives, gives us whatever we ask because we asked it, then God is not a good father. For to be a good father is to be one who gives to his children not what they want, but what they need. Because what they need is ultimately means what will bring them sustainable joy. And I love that here Jesus is saying, listen, you're not going to impress God because, because you talk a whole bunch at him. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, this is one of the things that he taught them. And, and I think that this is important for us to understand is that None of us know how to pray as we ought to. So let's get rid of the guilt trip around the lack of prayer in our lives and let's just become like little children and begin the process of learning how to pray from a foundation of grace.
Karl Barth said, is there any person who can rightly say I can pray? I fear that the people who want to say that, that, to say that are in truth the very people who cannot pray. And conversely, those who lament I cannot pray are the ones to tell for this very reason you are in truth very close to praying. Real praying is something that we cannot do, but something that happens not on the basis of an ability, but because God has accepted us as his children. There is no art of praying. There is only the simple permission of the child of God. Making use of this permission is what you should do when you cannot pray. You have permission to come boldly into the throne room of grace. It is making use of that permission. Why do we worry so much about what we say? Or does God looking for eloquence or looking for the right things to pray? And maybe the, the reason that we don't talk to him is, is actually a more, is more fundamentally wrapped up around faith than it is our inability to pray. Is that, do we really believe he's there? Do we believe he's listening? I... Um, have always resonated with, uh, with this poet, um, Christian Wyman, and he wrote in his uh, last kind of memoir prose book on faith and poetry called um, He Beheld Radical Light. He said, I did not know the, um, I did not know the acuteness of his absence until first I had felt his presence. And I think that we have to recognize that life is difficult and there are times where we lose sight of God and where it becomes difficult to hear his voice. And that's just part of the human journey, which is why we need one another and why we need to know that God isn't sitting around waiting for you to disappoint him. You're not a bigger failure than he already knows that you are and that's the gift of the gospel. He loves you still. I I think a great picture of this is I was traveling to London with my son Henry and uh, I was so excited because I'm like, I love this kid. He's so fun to be with. And I'm like, we're going to have this 12-hour flight or 10-hour flight to just visit and catch up. And we're going to hang and it's going to be deep and it's going to be beautiful. And we got on that plane. And about 30 minutes before we landed, we had both watched three movies and hadn't said a word to each other. <laughs> and then he turned to me and he talked to me for a couple minutes. And do you think that I like yelled at him? and said, you could have been talking to me this whole flight. No, I was just so happy to be with my boy. And I was so happy that he wanted to talk to me at all. That his recognizing my presence, and I remember he like bumped me and he goes, he goes, dad, thanks for bringing me on this, I love you. I'm like, I love you too. And then he put his headphones back on and he finished his show. (laughs) That went miles with me. I was like, he loves me, that's my boy. He's happy to be with me. And I think that sometimes we feel this guilt, like we're not living up to the standard that Jesus puts forth in the scriptures. Of course not, the impossibility of the standard that only he can keep is the recognition that we need, that prayer itself is grace, which means that it requires God's presence in us and he's not looking for the, he's not giving you a word count Uh, He's not looking for eloquence or right theology. He's looking for a people that come to him and say, help, thank you, I worship you. Look at this. First of all, we need to understand 
that we have access through identification. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember what Jesus said, but when you pray, pray like this. Now, there are many people that say the Lord's Prayer is something you should pray exactly as is given. I personally hold to this very deep conviction that, uh, that Jesus nor the writers of the New Testament were actually prescriptive. What I believe they were was instructive. Prescriptive is saying, this is the way that I do it, and you need to do it exactly like I do it. What Jesus does is he gives instruction. He gives them a framework, but it is not, he's not saying, this is the exact prayer that you were to pray. He's saying, when you pray, pray like this, which means that these are the principles that should be involved in your prayer life. And that's why people have asked me, they're like, I wish you were more prescriptive when you teach. And I'm like, I don't want to be prescriptive. What I want to be is instructive. I want the spirit to, I want to give you the basic principles, but it is the spirit's role to actually help you apply that in the way that God has uniquely designed you. And when it comes to prayer lives, they vary. How people pray, D.L. Moody once said, he's, uh, he was friends with all these guys that were serious uh, people. Ari Torrey, who was the first president of Moody Bible College, you know, Tori was a guy who would get on his knees and pray for hours every day. Moody said, I can't be like many of my friends. I prefer praying as I go. He's an evangelist. It was like he, he, couldn't, just, he couldn't just stay still. He had to, but he learned how to pray in the way that God had wired him to pray, which is he prayed as a man who was always on the move, who couldn't hold still, who couldn't still his mind. He was too busy weeping over the lost. And I think that you need to give yourself some grace and that God has uniquely wired you. And he's not wired you to be just like me and he hasn't wired me to be like you. He's wired each of us uniquely and has given us all the capacity. If we have been born again, he has given us the capacity by his spirit to commune with him. And what Jesus tells us here is that our access comes through our identification with him, but his identification with us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This simple word, Father, in how the prayer begins, an opening that to me speaks not of someone with whom we will have a relationship after certain pious exercises, but of the one to whom we already are related to by sonship. More than that, it suggests that for both the disciples and us, the sonship we have is precisely Jesus' own by which we are able to stand in the presence of the Father. It says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, when we pray, we are praying through the lips of Christ. We are praying through the lips of Christ. Our identity is in him. And we have the ability because of what he has accomplished for us. We have the ability to come to the Father and to be able to say our Father who is in heaven is the recognition that we have the ability to enjoy heaven on the way to heaven because it is his spirit within us that draws us into this place. It says that we are with him in the heavenly places, one of those mysterious passages in Ephesians. And I always say that there is a part of us that rests with Christ and a part of Christ that rests with us. And there is this strange merging between that which is seen and that which is not seen. 
And we need to understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of this age, that there is a spiritual reality, but that spiritual reality is played out in a physical material world. And when we enter into prayer, we are reminding ourselves that there is more than what is just simply seen with the senses. When we enter into prayer, we are reminding ourselves that the gift of the gospel is that God has come near to us in Christ. And to be able to say our Father is to, is to speak forward a truth, whether we feel it or not, that God is present, that he is in this place. And I have found that people who exercise prayer, that gift of grace, the people that take advantage of this, this beautiful gift of God's presence are the ones that begin to experience God's presence in their daily lives. The more we surrender to the reality of Christ, the more we press into the gift of prayer, the more we begin to recognize God is with us. God is in this place. I always say that the moment we anchor ourselves in the centrality of the cross, what I have found over time, over the 20 years of being a believer, is that the more centralized I become on the gospel, the more I press into this beautiful reality that I am not just trying to learn about Christ, but I am trying to learn to be with Christ, to be the Christian I have already become that I'm not working toward victory, that I'm working from it. The more I exercise that, regardless of what I feel or not, the more I begin to see the pinpoints of grace, not only in the present, but I begin to even see the pinpoints of grace in my past, and the, which gives me a confidence for the future. And I think that this is the thing that we need to understand, is that the ability to call God our Father is because we are in the Son. And why we need to hold tenaciously to that is because it reminds us that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus. Your lack of prayer does not change even one aspect of what Christ has already accomplished for you. You cannot diminish it, you cannot take away from it. All you can do is say yes, to his yes over your life. And as we accept that yes, that is what brings the freedom, but with the freedom now comes the responsibility to take advantage of the permission that has been granted to us. And I think that this is the beautiful thing, the permission that we have is the permission to draw near to God. Because James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Our access to God is hinged upon our identification in the Son. Prayer is grace, because we didn't climb our way to heaven. Heaven came down to earth. This is the beauty of the gospel. The cross is something we die on with Christ. And that daily death is actually what releases the power of his of life in our lives. It gives us the ability to know him. Remember, the greatest threat I see in scripture is when Jesus says, there will be many that come to me in the last days, and I will say to them, who say, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? And he says, away from me, I never what? Knew you. Which tells us that the essence of the gospel is knowing the living God. In fact, Jesus himself said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ, your son whom you have sent. 
prayer, which is a gift of grace, a permission to know the one who knows us intimately. It's the freedom to come to a father who loves us, not because we're lovable, but because it's his nature to do so. And that is a gift. It's access through identification. He says, secondly, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I think that this for us reminds us that presence, the presence of God is experienced through our daily surrender. Prayer in its essence is a surrender to the very reality by which all other realities hinge. That it's the, it's the surrender to his kingdom, which means if the essence of sin is you creating your own kingdom by which you are the one who has the rule over what it is that you do. I, I think that this is essential to understanding what sin is because we often think in the pew uh, within the church that the sinners are those that are out there. No, we are sinners and the only reason we are saints is because we are sinners who have been forgiven and have accepted that forgiveness. But we are called to proclaim that same forgiveness to the world because Christ on the cross, it says that God is reconciling the world to himself through his son. And we are the witnesses to that reconciling reality. We aren't going out to the world and saying, we have arrived. We are better. We are morally more grounded. No, what we say is we are sinners who are redeemed by the only one who is actually perfect. And the only thing that separates us from the lost and the found is that we are a sinner who's been found versus a sinner who's not been found. <laughs> so why would we be arrogant about that? We are beggars showing beggars where they can find some bread. And I think that what the world is looking for in the church is not us pretending to be morally perfect people because that's, that is a guilt trip and a head trip that exhausts, it exhausts people in the pew and it brings scandal in the pulpit. And I think what we have to move toward is a radical vulnerability that recognizes we're just as screwed up as those people out there. That if any of us was to reveal all the deep, dark secrets that are floating around in our head at any point of any given day, most people wouldn't be our friends. And if you're like, no, they'd be my friends. Well, they wouldn't be my friends. <laughs> I can't say what's going on in your head, but if your head's you know, morally perfect without ever a dark thought, you know, congratulations, you should be, you should, be the ideal then. Uh, but the fact is, is that we're an enigma to ourselves because we live in a fallen world with fallen bodies and fallen minds. And the best we can do is surrender. And this is why Jesus says the second thing you should be praying, the principle of prayer is it is my kingdom go, your kingdom come. If sin in its essence is you being God, you defining for yourself what is right and wrong, then salvation by its essence is the reestablishment of the actual creator of all things in, in total rule over every arena of your life. And the rule over your life is an invitation to enter into friendship with him because he says, he says not only is he the savior of the world, but he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I now call you friends. And prayer leads us into the beauty of friendship and the presence of Christ as our friend comes through our daily surrender to his lordship over our lives. 
I always say that a refusal to submit, a refusal to surrender, doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but it does hide that reality from our, from our presence. God becomes a distant thought when we live in continual rebellion, trying to control our own lives. And people will say, well, are they sin? Or are they, are, are, am I saved? And I'll say, it doesn't, I can't speak to who's in and who's out. What I believe is that Jesus died for all people. And all I can say is that if you're living in content, continual rebellion, you may be saved, but you, may not, you won't have a, a, a assurance around that salvation because that comes from the surrender to God's presence is what brings his presence into focus. And so when we recognize that prayer is a gift of grace, it's this it's this beautiful gift by which we are consistently coming before our king and saying, your kingdom come. And if God has made us, if we are created for his glory, if we, have, if we are not actually going to be fulfilled, complete people until we are once again united with him intimately as acquaintances, as friends, then to surrender to him is the beginning of the journey toward real fulfillment. The world says pursue happiness. And the pursuit of happiness in, as an American ideal is, is about as faulty of a foundation as any foundation you can build your life upon. Because the pursuit of happiness as an American ideal is the, is the right to possess land, to possess home, to have the, the privileges of making a life for oneself in this particular place. But what we know in a fallen world is that making a place for ourselves in this world will always be marked by futility and toil because that's the curse. Jesus is the reverse of that curse and the true satisfaction and joy is not found in our ability to escape suffering in the world, but it's our willingness to be identified with Christ who leads us into very difficult situations, but we do not lose hope because we know that he has conquered the world. Presence through surrender is that character forming reality that comes out of a, of a regular prayer life. It is, Jesus, I am yours. Do what you want. Not my will be done, but your will be done. I, I think that it's a recognition that of the paradox that our strength is found in our weakness. His help is dependent upon our helplessness. Do not be too strong for God is essentially what Jesus is teaching us to pray right here. I think that it's, it's easy to believe that the world wants us to present to, our, to, to it a, a strength that is actually toxic, and I won't call it toxic masculinity, I'll just call it toxic humanity, <laughs> by which we present to ourselves the, the false ideal that everything that is necessary to live an awesome life is found within the human heart. But Jesus says that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. And so it is actually the surrender of our lives that actually brings the strength and the victory. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, My, He said, 
I had a thorn in my flesh, and we don't even know what the thorn was. It could have been a physical ailment. It could have been a spiritual oppression. It could have been, it could have been a psychological doubt and fear. Who knows what it is? But instead of removing whatever it is that he was experiencing, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. To pray your kingdom come, your will be done, is to acknowledge before the creator of the universe that without you I am lost. It's saying more than I need someone to help me, it's saying I need someone to save me. And it is when we surrender like that, that we actually have the ability to be conduits of that same salvation, that same help that is present in the spirit by actually pouring out the grace that we receive and giving it away to a world that is lost and broken. I like what Robert Farrar Capone says. He says, God rises from his death in Jesus not to satisfy our requests, reasonable or unreasonable, unexpressed or overexpressed, but to raise us from our own deaths. All we need to offer in order to share in the joy of his rising is the shameless, selfless admission that we are dead without him and the faith to confess that we are also dead with him and in him. I love that. He loved to obsessively declare to you, uh, to, to people who were willing to read him, the only thing that you have to bring to Jesus is your dead bodies, but he who is the resurrection and the life means that you are his cup of tea. And I love that. What a beautiful and poignant way of declaring that his kingdom come is my entrance into his joy, that his will be done is my freedom now finally found. Confidence through participation. In Matthew chapter six, verse 10, he says, on earth as it is in heaven. My confidence is not in myself, but it is in Christ. And when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are saying, Lord, what you are, we are asking for you to be in and through us here in this place. The gospel is down to earth. Christ come down to meet humanity in its brokenness. He saves us who are broken people, earthy people, so that through us, as broken, messy conduits, he brings that same gospel, that same saving message, that we are offering a hand to those that, like us, need a hand. We have accepted the hand of Christ, and now we are offering that same hand. And this is the beautiful reality, is that our confidence in Christ's presence in our lives moves us forward into a participation in his saving purposes. What I said before is that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit first and foremost, and the Spirit himself is the one who is responsible for our sanctification, which means that we are being sanctified, moved like intimates, maybe small degree by small degree toward a, a greater likeness to Jesus, sometimes imperceptible to our own senses or even to those around us. But as we step out in faith and say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we begin to see that God uses broken, messy people like you and I to do his work. And that is a beautiful gift. It's the unwillingness to admit that we're as broken and as glitchy as we are that actually hinders and hurts the church's witness. 
It's why pastors fall. Because they stopped presenting to the church the reality of what they are. A foolish sinner just like everybody else who is lost without Jesus. And I think too often there's an expectation in the pew and a hypocrisy in the pulpit. There is an expectation. I've had people leave Door of Hope because I was too honest about my own brokenness. And I get it. I mean, I'm a little bit crazy and that says a lot about you. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter three, verse nine says, for we are God's fellow workers. The work of the gospel is the, is the honest representation of us as sinners who have been saved saying, come and experience the one who saved me and is continuing to save me. It's not saying come and, and find the ideal that you have never been able to achieve. Look at me achieve it. Come be part of that. And look, no, come and struggle with the rest of us as we stumble toward eternity. But we do it together. And we do it with the presence of God's very life in our lives. This is why Luther said, if Jesus saved me from sin, why didn't he save me from sinning? And then he goes on in a letter to Melanchthon, he says, therefore sin boldly because you can't escape its reality. He says, but love the mercy of God more. The mercy of God is this it's the recognition that we can't escape our sin that causes us to cast ourselves at the feet of Christ. That's why I always say sin hidden hides God from our presence. Sin confessed becomes the actual place where he meets us. If death itself has been defeated by God and it is the means by which we are ushered into more life, confession of sin is also the place by which we are ushered into more life, the life of Christ, who he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God has turned the sinfulness of humanity upside down on its head and now utilizes the confession of sin as a very means by which he meets us the most powerfully. And this is one of the powers of prayer. This prayer and confession go hand in hand. As we confess before God and one another that we are broken and lost and it becomes the place by which Jesus meets with us powerfully. This is why a prayerless life is a life without intimacy. Because as my son said, if it's just talking with God, why didn't you tell me? I'm telling you, all of you, the prayer is just the simple conversation, the recognition that God is present. And it's marked by gutturals and indistinct chatter and sometimes nonsense and illogical statements and irrational requests. But man, that is better than nothing because all of those things are just what it means to be human. Think of what your, your toddler is like. You don't get mad at them when they're learning to talk because they say dumb things <laughs> or they say nonsensical things. In fact, we're so grateful that our kids, the gift of being human being is one of the great gifts is the ability to communicate with one another. The spiritual life is learning a new discipline, which is the ability to communicate with a God that cannot be seen with the eyes, but can be known. A God who is present and closer to us than we are to our own thoughts. And he is inviting us to participate in his saving work. Which brings me closing to the goal of prayer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. C.S. Lewis once said that the secret, of, the secret power in Christian life is a thankful heart. And it, gratitude is often the thing that is missing the most when it comes to, uh, to how it is that we live, especially in a time like today, where it's hard to be thankful because we see all the brokenness. When we read the reports of an explosion in Afghanistan that takes 13 soldiers and kills 200 people, it, it becomes difficult to be grateful. When we hear about the 72nd homicide in Portland this year, when in previous years, I think the numbers over the last multiple years were maybe around 30. I mean, the, when, you, when you hear about the continual battles, the day after we did the prayer and worship um, uh, service downtown on the waterfront, which was totally peaceful, uh, devoid of any conflict, and the next day you have a, you have a battle happening of, of the Proud Boys and Antifa shooting pepper spray into each other's faces. It's hard to be grateful when you look at the piles of garbage, when you look at the graffiti, when you see the tensions, the racial tensions, the political tensions, the frustrations over the never-ending realities of COVID, all these things can create in us an anxiety and an animosity that I found in myself. I had all of a sudden, I just got in the bad mood as the news just kept creeping in this week that was ugly. And by Friday night, instead of being grateful, I found myself edgy and angry, and it caused me to lash out at my daughter for no reason. And I had to just send her this apology yesterday. I'm like, honey, I'm so sorry that I just became a jerk. I realized it had nothing to do with you. It just had to do with me just feeling anxious and frustrated, and it, and it manifested instead of a joy and a Christ-likeness, I showed the ugly underbelly of just how sinful I'm capable of being by making my own beautiful, angelic, magical daughter, Hattie Starr, cry. And I think that this is the, why we need one another. It's why we need to be honest about our brokenness and why we need to practice a thankfulness because no matter how dark the days are, Jesus has not lost his grip on this world. And no matter how difficult things are going to get, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And what we need is a thankfulness. The very thing that brought me out of my eight months of crippling anxiety was being away praying and fasting, prayer, fasting at a cabin on the Deschutes River. I was so crippled by my anxiety that I was about to like check myself in. And I think if I wasn't going to, my wife probably was because I was literally losing my mind. And I remember being out at this little point um, on the bend on the Deschutes River in this kind of open field. And I, and I fell on my knees and I just began to weep because I was so terrified of the, of the chaos in my head. I felt lost and trapped in my head. I was so anxious. And the only way I could describe my anxiety was it was this overwhelming sense of dread. This overwhelming sense of like something really bad was going to happen, almost like some kind of dark portent or something. And, and I just collapsed and I'm like, Lord, I'm afraid. 
I'm, 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 I'm scared, I don't know what to do. And I just remember the Lord just gave me this vision and he, it was like the, a real vision where he showed me how he had saved me at 27, how he had saved my wife two years later, how he blessed us with Henry, how he called us into ministry six months after my wife had become a believer, how he gave me the gift of music back after I felt like it had been taken away. I always say that God gives us what we want when we no longer need it, and he always gives it to us in a way that we didn't expect it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm getting to do everything that I ever dreamed of and touring around the world, and then to bring us to California, and we're blessed with Hattie, and then to come back to Portland and to start Door of Hope, and he showed me this whole trajectory, and I realized that in all of the stress of leading Door of Hope, in all of my anxiety, I'd stopped being thankful. And I just said, Lord, thank you. Forgive me, help me. And it was like the next week, the anxiety was lifted. And it was a powerful testimony. And honestly, I think Jesus let me go through that anxiety as I often prayed the most dangerous prayer that any of us can pray, do whatever it takes to make me a man, a woman after your heart. And he's like, you don't have empathy. Let me give that to you. <laughs> don't tell people that they're anxious just because they're being sinful. You should be more compassionate. And it was like, let me let you taste anxiety in all of its glory. And, and it was, I'm like, thank you for that gift, Lord. Please don't ever let me do that again. I don't ever want to go there again. Uh, but I think that the beauty of being thankful and this practice, thanks in, in, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. What is God's will for my life? That you commune with him. That's his will for your life. Because your witness flows out of your communion with him. Your witness flows out of knowing that you are loved and your ability to love him is what gives you the capacity to love others. You guys, we just ended 21 days of prayer today, but I just got asked by 24-7 prayer, which is a ministry started by Pete Gregg, um, and several churches are doing 21 days of prayer again in Portland starting tomorrow. And so I haven't even told anyone, but we, um, they asked if we, because we always do early morning things, if we would take the 21 days of, of 6 a.m. morning prayer from September 1st to the 21st, Mel, you in? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> um, so, so we're going to keep morning prayer going for the next 21 days, but this time it's going to be other churches coming and joining us in the mornings. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to let you know, I'll be here. This is a time for us to learn to pray. You don't have to feel self-conscious about it because nobody knows how to pray. But it's something we ought to be doing. Prayer is grace because it's a revelation of Christ's presence in our lives. You don't have to feel guilty about your lack of prayer, but be, begin to pray because he's present and he's pleased when his kids look up and notice he's there. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the way that it brings transformation to our lives. I pray that we would recognize that the power of our community flows out of a persistent shared weakness before the cross of Jesus. That humility is both the beginning and the end to experiencing the empowerment of your spirit and your presence, oh God. We want to be a community that is marked by the gentle grace of you, Jesus. And so we draw near to you, the one who says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest.
And we look to you for our shalom in these dark days. Lord, we want to pray for the families who lost loved ones. Lord, in Afghanistan, we want to pray for the unrest that continues in our city. We want to pray for the lost, that they would find in you a God who has come to seek and save that which is lost. We want to pray for our own community, that we would be protected, empowered, and courageous in our proclamation of who you are. As we go to the river today for baptisms and people are baptized in public, I pray that that proclamation would inspire others to say, I need that, I need the joy, I need the love that I see in these people and in this community. And Lord, we want to be a community that is grounded in an expectation of your presence in a pursuit of knowing you through prayer and through the word and through fellowship and through the breaking of bread. Lord, make us a people after your heart. Thank you for your grace. May it be the thing that inspires us. Lord, guilt and shame does not produce transformation, but it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so Lord, we turn to you once again, the author and the finisher of our lives the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you that everything that needs to be done has been done in you. So Jesus, may you be our all in all. We pray this in your name, amen.